0: Um, We're live again for episode three of MHTV. Um, It's at an earlier time of 1pm today um, because we're interviewing Rachel Bowes in Australia um, and it's evening over there. Um, I'm Vanessa Garrity and I will be presenting today along with my colleague, Nikki Lambert. I'm a mental health nurse and I run We Mental Health Nurses on Twitter um, Nikki,
1: do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm a mental health nurse and I teach
0: nurses. Okay, and we've got Rachel Bose with us. Hello, Rachel. Rachel's live with us in Sydney at the moment, and it's night time over there, isn't it?
2: Hi. Yes, it is. It's ten pm, so I'm trying to um, keep myself awake with caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> here with you, it's exciting.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you here. And, um, and Nicky, um, you're going to be doing the social media today. Do you
1: want to say a few words? I am. I am. It's my first time on social media, so I'm quite excited. Um, you can watch us live and join in the debate um, if you go to the Unite MHNA live page. Um, and you can like and follow us there. You can ask any question. If you're looking for us on Twitter, um, it's hashtag MHTV. Thanks. Thank
0: you. Okay, so um, we'll go straight into the first question then, Rachel, if that's okay with you. And yeah. um, I guess um, for me, um, it's really exciting to interview you. We worked together, didn't we, a long time ago. Um, I can't remember how long, but I think it must be going on for twenty, fifteen, twenty 15, 20 years now, probably. I think it's nearly 20.
2: I think it's nearly yeah. 20. Yeah, I was thinking about it too.
0: Yeah, so lots has changed since then and obviously you're now living in Australia and you've been there quite a few years now, haven't you, as a mental health nurse? So I guess um, that brings me to my first question really, is um, what's it like as, um, as a mental health nurse who trained in the UK now living and working in Australia?
2: Um, it's, like, it's lovely. You know, Australia's a really great place. It's, it's really cheesy because everyone thinks, oh it's sunny but actually it's sunny a lot of the time and it's really really lovely and so um you know the whole weather and lifestyle thing I know we joke about it but actually is a really lovely place to live and to work and to have a family like I've really appreciated the the ability to be outside so much like we you know it's great for your mental health to be out in and walking about and being in beautiful places and there is an abundance of that here so um, I feel really lucky to live in this lovely place that I do Um, and it's a a great place to work. You know I think um, the actual profession of mental health nursing is probably not quite where it's at in the UK. I think I noticed that when I first came out here and it hasn't really changed and it feels just like everything is just a few years behind, so it's, I think perhaps we in Australia don't quite have the innovation that happens um, in the UK, and you know, and obviously there are exceptions to that because there's some really great clinicians working here, but I think generally we don't seem to generate as much of the kind of new practice and evidence base um, in the way that I, I felt like happened when I worked in the UK. Yeah. Um, I think that's a little bit to do with with the training. I know we we're going to talk about that a bit later, but um, the fact that uh, everyone does a normal nursing degree and can either go and work in a mental health setting or any other setting, and mm. have to have that specialist postgraduate, you can get you can get that and be a specialist mental health nurse, but you don't need to have done that to work in mental health. And I do wonder sometimes if that. Um, a smaller workforce of people who are specialist mental health nurses means that there just isn't the same opportunity to be innovative and influential as you might do somewhere else. So um, that is my only my own personal take on it. I think there might be some people who disagree, but my general sense is that it's um, it, it feels being here now is a bit like when I worked at, back in the UK. 10 15 years ago, it kind of feels like not much is different, really. Um, but the pay is better,
3: yeah.
2: That, that's a, a, a really significant thing here, even accounting for the mm-hmm. cost of living. Nurses are paid better across the board here, yeah,
0: yeah. That point about um, generic mental health nursing um, is really interesting, isn't it? Because there's been lots of debate in the last few years about us moving to a more generic um, mental health nursing programme. And um, Nikki, I wondered if you had any thoughts about that.
1: Do I? (laughs) Oh, you've just just launched the first grenade of the episode. (laughs) I I am a stalwart mental health nurse. I've been a mental health nurse for 20 years. I come from a family of adult nurses and doctors, and I never even considered it, not for a second. If that had been my only option, I wouldn't have done it. Not not even remotely, because it didn't speak to me. And I think mm. different populations, when you serve different populations, different characteristics are probably needed. So whilst I'm not saying at all that all mental health nurses are the same, but I think we have... A certain approach which unites us all and I would say globally as well having been to conferences all over and worked in Australia as well um in a way that we just approach situations slightly differently and I think that's right because the qualities that make you a great mental health nurse would make you a terrible theatre nurse you know in the surgical yeah. situation <laughs> and the qualities that make you amazing at that might not translate into working with children or yeah. people with learning disabilities and the other yeah. thing I worry about seeing how um, the learning disability field has been so undermined. Um, you look now at the number of learning disability deaths, and I cannot help but think that there's a connection there with mm. people who have a specialty and a specialist interest. there um, There is advocates, there there is practitioners, they're pushing research, pushing education forward. When they're not there, that population um, suffers, I think, and I would hate to see that happen for the people who... I work with and who I love to work with I wouldn't want them to have a different type of care because of it
0: mm.
3: look
1: that was the polite calm down quiet version
0: okay, okay. Well, I think I agree with most of what you've said really that <laughs> I don't I don't agree with um <laughs> it's know. funny though is it because
2: I was um one of the first uh years that did project 2000 and I remember how how terribly people spoke about us and how we were going to be this generation of nurses that were over over educated but a bit a bit clueless and I remember finding it all really offensive at the time and actually when I then went to to work and be a mental health nurse some of the best nurses I worked with were those people that did Project 2000 and it just I don't know. And I think none of the kind of angst that people had about that seemed to translate into real differences in practice. I think people could always find if they were looking for them. But equally, we could easily find examples of people who trained 10 years before us who who were equally woeful or equally brilliant. So, um, yeah, isn't it how there's such a cyclical pattern to these to these things?
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think the disadvantage of Project 2000 for me was that um, whilst we covered physical health care, as a mental health nurse, it was never framed in a way as this is going to be something that's useful to you as the mental health nurse. It was almost that you have to do the same as what the general nurses are doing. So it was never Mm. made to feel relevant. Whereas now, hindsight of 20 odd years, I think if only I'd appreciated how that was kind of relevant to to my Mm. past. I think it was just because it was at the beginning of that wave of, of change, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, we've got a new curriculum. Don't forget, in the UK now, which balances things out, yes. technically a little bit better. So this Mm -hmm. expectation that mental health nurses need to know about how people's bodies work to be able to actually sort of honour someone's recovery. There's no point Mm -hmm. being a great therapist and watching somebody die of diabetes and not say anything. Yeah, exactly. In the same way, sort of mental um, adult and child nurses need to think about how they can support mental well-being and flourishing. So for me, I think hopefully we'll see things get better and and, and work together because, you know, it's a false... Because you're saying, um, Rachel, you were saying about the kind of false fight between are you kind or are you smart... So like, well, yeah. you can be both. Exactly. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you should be both, yeah, to be a mental yeah. health nurse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I suppose what I'm interested in, I know, Nikki, you've lived in Australia as well, but um, I'm relatively naive about the Australian system. How does it work? Um, so no lifelines a charity, isn't it? So how does it work generally? Are there statutory services? How would someone access mental health services in Australia?
2: In in lots of ways, it's the it's the it's the same as at home in in, in the UK. Like the, there's a lot of public mental health services which are like the NHS. They're kind of provided uh, under under Medicare, which is a you know, free at the point. of are free healthcare for anyone who needs to to use it. I mean, they're a bit bleak. Some of the public mental health services that I've been um, involved involved with Particularly when I first came to Australia you know some of the buildings were were really old again a bit like th- it it was yeah you know 15 20 years got home before we went through that whole episode of the reprovision and kind of building all the new hospitals and
3: mm-hmm. closing
2: it feels like again that's something that's taken a while to catch up with here and I think there is a little more of a two-tier system because a lot more people have private health cover mm-hmm. in Australia it's quite a normal thing to have and a lot of people have mental health cover as part of that so quite a lot of people who would usually perhaps be admitted as an informal patient to a ward but you know an episode of depression or anxiety in the public health service they probably wouldn't even get into hospital like they're not ill enough where they would go to a private hospital so there is that more of a two-tier uh, system so a lot of people do use private health care as well um, as the public mental health system but in other ways it's very much the same you know there's the community mental health teams and there's um kind of access to the psychological therapies through your gp and through the medicare program which is free so there's a lot of similarities i think the difference is the um increased use of private Uh, facilities that is probably a a lot more than people would use back in the UK and there is a huge um, not-for-profit and charitable sector um, in mental health that I suppose prop up some of that system as well.
0: Mm, That's interesting and what about in terms of social care and social um, equality Um, you know I'm thinking about like housing and poverty and things how is that tackled in Australia?
2: I would say pretty much the same as at home it's tackled poorly and haphazardly yeah. really um, yeah. yeah universally there are, so, there are so many there are so many similarities you know you walk around uh, Sydney and it's like when I walk around London you know yeah. or Leeds 10 years ago you know you see mm-hmm. this, those those pockets of real um Poverty and social, yeah. um, you know, deprivation. You'd see a huge amount of uh, homeless people who really don't have access to the kind of services or care that they need, or really struggle to access the ones that are there. And it's very much the same. It's yeah. the it's the same, it's the same mm-hmm. here. It's a bit sunnier, but really the pro- <laughs> the problems are yeah. just the same, and the proliferation of them are the same, and the struggle. From, um uh, from the state and federal government point of view to, to effectively deal with them is the same. It's mm-hmm. sad. Yeah. No good news stories to to share. Probably. No,
0: that's a shame. Yeah.
2: You know, that and like everything else, there's pockets of really great practice and good things that are happening and these little kind of shining beacons. Sorry. Sorry.
3: Right.
2: Um these little shining beacons of where great things are happening, but but you yeah. know. It's in a sea of mediocrity. Yeah,
1: sounds quite similar. Nikki, any thoughts? I was just wondering if you could you tell us a little bit more about your role, because it sounds really interesting.
2: Yeah, it is a really interesting role. And I have to say, I was talking to somebody else about this uh, the other day, a friend of mine who's got a daughter who's just started her nurse training. And there was a, a couple of us there, another friend of mine who's a general nurse. And we were talking about whether or not being a nurse had a good career pathway. Yeah. And my friend who's a general nurse was arguing that she didn't really think it did and and I, was like, I don't think that's true at all actually I think nursing mm-hmm. a really whatever branch actually you go into yeah. there's really great opportunities mm-hmm. in nursing and I think back to when I qualified I think I probably never thought that I would be doing the kind of job that I'm no. doing right mm-hmm. now because I think I thought I would probably always work in hospital or I would work in a health setting or in some ways be in that kind of public mental health um, system and I'm not, I work for um, a not-for-profit, it's probably one of the oldest and most well-known charities in Australia, Lifeline, it's something that all Australians have heard of and kind of have known since they grew up with, it's been around since the 60s and it is um, a crisis support and suicide prevention helpline and that's... um, That's what we we do. We have like a a million um, interactions every year, which for the Australian population is pretty significant. We're much bigger than any other similar service in the country. And I head up the, um, I guess, the clinical part of that service. So um, the team that work for me are responsible for the the development of the training that our crisis supporters who are the people that answer lifeline callers um answer our phones so we're responsible for the development of their training and that whole uh skills basis that they have and like it's a it's an interesting kind of balance because we are at the point of delivery not a clinical service the people who handle the calls and and are lifeline essentially they're not clinicians they're just people from any walk of life, who've gone through our kind of three-month training Mm programme, do this amazing work with people in Mm -hmm. crisis, really high risk. So at the point of delivery, it's a non-clinical service, and I think that's something that we organisationally kind of promote and are really proud of. Mm -hmm. But the reason that it's safe and effective is because there's a really strong clinical uh, An evidence-based to the skills we give people and, and the work that we do and the way we um, design and deliver and support the people who deliver the service. So kind of in the background, there's all this really important clinical stuff that happens. Um, the team that work for me, and I also head up the learning and development team who do all the design and making the, the training look look awesome and facilitate it and whatnot. Um, so, yes, yeah, so. So, we kind of have this weird conundrum where we're at the, on the face, not a clinical service, but behind and like a duck, all a yeah. make, <laughs> making it all work and be safe and be effective. So, but it's really, it's a really awesome job, actually. I love it.
1: Yeah. It's a good fit, <laughs> then. Yes. <deck. laughs> yeah. um, I do have a DM, a uh, direct message from Twitter, um, and it's a question about um, how's COVID 19. Um, impacted in mental health in Australia and for Lifeline.
2: It's a really, it's a really good question. We were just talking before we went, uh, we went live about the fact that mm. as a country, Australia has actually got off really lightly from the whole coronavirus thing. The death and infection rate has been low, and we're really, from a kind of practical, practical purposes, we're now moving out um, the other side. Kids are back at school. People are getting back to work. Financially, people are uh, readjusting and thinking about what the impact on them has been. But the actual mental health sector, I mean, we have seen such an increased demand on all all different kinds of services across the mental health sector, not just the um, not-for-profits not for and kind of in, informal services mm-hmm. like mine, but statutory mental health services also seen a really significant demand. and. Um, I guess what we are anticipating is that this isn't really going to go away anytime soon. Like As, as an organisation, we're really preparing to continue to deal with this increased demand for months, yeah. really. Yeah. And it's interesting that what we're seeing is not necessarily an uplift in the calls about suicide. Like we're not seeing from the service we run increased levels of suicidality beyond the normal percentage of of those calls that we are. But we're seeing a really significant increase in just a general level of anxiety and uncertainty. And I think it's really telling that, particularly in Australia, we've had coronavirus, we've had all the bushfires, that we've had some really extreme weather events that have have resulted in, in loss of life over the last 18 months, And they're all like this series of quite unprecedented situations, mm-hmm. things that people don't usually expect to live through in their lifetime. But we've had quite a few of them yeah. all in a short yeah. period of time. And I think when people are faced with this series of events, of things that they can't really control, mm-hmm. um, it it really has an, an impact on them. And I think yeah. there's a lot of global angst around will the world ever get back to normal? What's going to be like when I'm older? What kind of world are we bringing our children into? Like those really kind of big yeah. kind of existential exactly. worries that you can't do much about seem to be really prevalent at, at the moment. And um, from our from our service point of view, that is the, the kind of things that people are presenting with the kind of worries that people are, are coming with, how that sense of feeling a bit, that life is a bit out of control
0: mm, so you're thinking about that in terms of your training around um being trauma informed and um thinking about the sort of trauma support that people might need in the future
2: yeah yeah we are i mean there's quite a few we um our service were asked by the um the, the federal government to set up a a particular um, support line for the uh, bushfire affected communities we've been running that for a few months and that does have a slightly different different focus to our normal um, phone line because the people who were in those bushfire affected communities and I'm sure you would have seen some of the pictures on the news, I mean it was just so horrendous like it, it was just some of the imagery and the, and the things that people lived through were really shocking and certainly here it was on it was on the news constantly like you there was no no getting from it um and you know people respond really differently to those kind of events because you kind of have this this, yeah. bit, this period of time where they're dealing with all the very practical things about you know my house has burned down I've lost all my identification documents
3: mm. you know,
2: entire livelihood in these rural places has has gone like people have these hugely Um, practical things that they had to try and deal with. And it was like a month, two months later that we've started to see some of the real uh, kind of psychological impacts of living through that. And there were some bushfires about five years ago in Victoria where um, over 100 people died. I mean, it was was horrendous. And there was a long-term study done by one of the universities after, after that. And they showed that people, even five years later, were still showing the um, mental health impact of living through that. And so I think as a sector we've really tried to learn from that and to think about what do we need to put in place right now to stop that same cycle of things happening. So making sure that people have early access to psychological support and it's there within the communities where they're affected and they don't have to pay for it and they don't have to wait for it. and um, so you know, in some really good practices has come out of those learnings from other really terrible things that have happened
0: yeah so it sounds like lifeline do some signposting as well as offering psychological support to yeah services which is quite similar to uk isn't it crisis and i know you worked in crisis services didn't you in the uk as well i did a little bit yeah yeah and last night I was um, I was talking to a group of GPs on them on a different call and we were talking about um, you know particularly medical practitioners switching to more digital and telephone based interventions and I mentioned that I was interviewing you today and they were really interested in your kind of thoughts about the differences between sort of face-to-face interventions and speaking to people online and any kind of I guess any tips you might have and and thinking about kind of how you can transfer
2: those skills. And all that. It's re- it's really common here, and I think part of it is just the vast uh, geography of Australia. That so many people live so remotely that they might not live within a five-hour drive of a town. I think it's really hard to conceive of that when you come from the UK, that is so densely populated. But there are people in parts of Australia that literally say to us, "We would have to, we would have to drive a day." to the nearest psychologist or something. Like it's just kind of mind-blowing. Yes. So telehealth has really been very established in Australia for um, for a long time for all kinds of healthcare delivery and actually probably for the last seven years, even before Lifeline, I worked five years for a company that did um, telephony mental health services. We ran the, um, the statewide mental health triage, mm. which is like the gatekeeping for all the mental health services. It's really, it's really common here. Um, People, the population are used to ringing up to see help and expect that they might receive some of that over the phone or increasingly through a video conference, um, Skype, something like that. And at Lifeline, our, our, really our main delivery has been over the phone. So people call us, that's how they get support. But We've, um, we also have a small um, online chat and just recently um, text-based counselling as well, text-based support as well. So, And that is such a huge area of growth, like the demand for the text service is way beyond what we can deliver. And our main focus now for the next year is to move that to 24-7 delivery, the same as our phone service because the demand is so great. And what's really interesting about the, the text service is that it attracts a completely different population to the to the yeah. phone service. So Lifeline's quite traditional and mm-hmm. our average user is like a 50-year-old white woman, which makes me think, oh my God, that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but the demographic users for the text service are much younger people in their 20s. Or more men um, using that than use the phone service. And in interestingly, above population percentages of minority groups, so much higher um, use from LGBTI groups, much higher use from people from uh, cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds, mm-hmm. and significantly a much higher um, use from the Indigenous Australian population than use any other service. And, I think the um, the anonymity of text and the ease mm. of use, the, the privacy of it all, like there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's really attractive to people who want to seek help in a very low-key, low, low key, very anonymous kind of way. Like you literally don't need to give away anything of yourself in on a, <clears throat> a text interaction and it's really freeing. Yeah,
0: so what strikes me with that is, and i'm thinking back to when i was involved in setting up some um telephone support myself and there wasn't much of an uptake of it from patients um and this was in a general practice setting so what strikes me in what you've said is that australian residents can obviously see the benefit of it because of the you know vastness of the country and therefore for them kind of um being able to use that service is obviously going to be more realistic than Um, You know, going for a face-to-face consultation Mm. and um, the other thing that that strikes me is I'm working with schools at the moment so I was just thinking about what you were saying about text services because we do work where children and young people can text and it's really popular as you've said so I was wondering whether um, Lifeline is universal, do you work with adults or do you work with children and young people as well, would they access Lifeline?
2: Yeah, and anyone can use it like no um, boundaries or, or exclusion criteria at all. And yeah. we don't actually ask people. We don't ask them anything about themselves.
3: Right. We don't
2: for any data. So we only find things out anecdotally from, you know, in a roundabout way for the things that, you know, if a person tells us they're still at school, you can have a good guess at their age bracket. We tend to know because of that. um, Yeah. Really. Um, So, yeah, we do – so we get um, contacts across the whole age spectrum, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are other services that are much more aimed at at younger people. um, Helpline, which is pretty much the same service as ours but is really pitched at um, young people and they also have a text-based service and that is really, um, really well used.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and um, it was quite interesting what you were saying about the um, indigenous populations um, using the text message. And I was just thinking generally, because there's starting to be some emerging research, isn't there, about learning from um, indigenous populations and community. Um, so I just wondered if you had any thoughts to share with us um, about that, mm-hmm. really, your experience working in Australia.
2: What can we learn? Yeah, yeah. It's really it's really interesting actually. It's been a bit of a steep learning curve for me. I think um until you come to Australia, you don't really um understand what the relationship is between Australia and the Australian Indigenous people and how completely rooted they are in the in the kind of the history and the backstory of Australia and how in mm-hmm. some way how offensive and kind of confronting the um, relatively recent colonisation of the, the country has been and what the impact has been on the Indigenous population. and it, It's so uh, complex and the mental health of Indigenous Australians is really is really tied up in that. I mean, they're, the rates of mental illness and suicide are incredibly high um, among the Indigenous population, much higher than um, in the normal population. And the... The the kind of beliefs of the Indigenous people are very much that in the way that the the cause of of that, of the of the high levels of mental illness and suicidality, is really related to the effects of colonization and all the kind of many injustices that have happened to Indigenous people in Australia, that the solutions for those can't be imposed. And I think what's been happening in Australia for the decades is that. The state and federal governments and it just services generally have tried to, with the best of intentions, impose their service models and their ways of working on Indigenous communities to try and fix these problems. And it never it 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 yeah. failed time. And the that there's this increasing understanding and acceptance of the fact that Indigenous people have to they understand the the root yeah. of, of the problems and they have to design the solutions and implement the solutions Mm -hmm. and the role of other services is to support and facilitate that rather impose. And I think that that has been an important shift that has taken a really long time um, to to happen and for people to accept that we might not know best because, you know, white people who run these very traditional services that our solutions don't work, they don't Mm -hmm. address the, the causes of the problem. Um, yeah. They they're not the right solution. So it's a, real, um, it's a real challenge, but I think that we're kind of at a point now in Australia where people collectively are understand that we need to hand over the responsibility for um finding the solutions back to Indigenous people. Because of them it's just all so closely connected to community and spirituality and the environment that they live in and kind of based in the land it's, it's a completely contextually a different understanding mm. of of mental health and mental illness and what the solution is that like mm. yeah they're in two different places yeah
0: yeah there's a lot of learning there isn't there that's very transferable yes. around privilege and um paternalism and about us kind of needing to go into people's communities and work with them and understand things through their mm. social context and and also about lived experience, you know, that really strikes yeah. me, isn't it? About, you know, unless we have lived experience, can we really understand what it's like for a person and particularly, you know, all the sort of intersectional stuff around um, you know, gender and race and culture and social class as well so it's really interesting I know Nikki you were quite interested in this aspect as well
1: so is there anything you want to ask <laughs> anything to start a fight you know me yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I do have I do have a couple of questions actually so uh, one is one is a bit hard one is a bit easy so I'm gonna go with the harder one first I think
2: okay um, go on let's hope I can answer it if it's too hard
1: don't do it too um, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a question about um, whether bushfires happening before um, meant that people were exhausted and that COVID had a greater impact. Mm,
0: good one. Yeah, good question.
1: Yeah, it's a good
2: question, and I actually don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Mm. The um, I guess the the bushfires, even though I'm sure externally they were like Austra- looked like Aust- the whole of Australia was on fire. Mm. It was actually kind of clustered in 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 spots on um, up and down, particularly the the east coast and. You know, I mean, the big metro areas like, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, we we could see the smoke, but we were not really affected. It was these really small, regional, remote, tiny Mm. communities sometimes that were just so heavily impacted. So I think for the people who live there, who have, in many cases, lost everything, I think probably to have to deal with the whole COVID thing on top of that, I wonder if it even has really registered in, in a way because, um, yes, we've had lockdown and we've had isolation. And, but I think that for the people in those bushfire-ravaged communities, their lives were probably so upside down and um, just struggling day-to-day and nothing's normal that they, in in some ways, may have almost got through through the whole coronavirus thing thinking how, how can life possibly be any worse than it already is so yeah, but I haven't seen a huge amount about it but there is a lot of um research happening in those bushfire communities again a kind of follow-ups from the yeah, other one would yeah. be interesting to see if any of um the commentary from that in years to come has anything to say about the impact of this so closely after that because it was we went from you know bushfires at, at the end of January and then two weeks later we you know we was in lockdown
1: so yeah it's interesting we're going to I mean human tragedy you, know, you can't touch that side of it but there's something mm-hmm. to be studying a lot about kind of national identity how we see ourselves as individuals how we find meaning and how that really does impact mental well-being you know this mm-hmm. idea about how what the certainties are and again, as well, I think none of this stuff is going away, is it? It's likely that climate change will continue to be a problem. It's likely that pandemics will continue to be a problem. And the more mm. that we can learn about how to support each other, the better, really. I think. Yeah, absolutely. The other one, which I think is a slightly easier question. Don't worry. It's one of those very. It's very much. I won't say he's asking, but it's one of those um, uh, asking for a friend questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going do do they break. want the
2: job? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's about um, sort of the work that you do being so much online. I think a lot of, of nurses and, and educators have suddenly had to swing around mm. when they're used to really relying on their face skills. But like, is there any um, advice for building rapport on the phone?
2: That is a really good one. So our whole model that we use at Lifeline, our whole clinical model is built around connection and engagement and the sense that the most important thing that you can do in a, in a conversation whether that's on the phone or by text is to genuinely engage with that person to create a space where they feel mm-hmm. safe and supported and that we facilitate their that we allow them to share what's on their mind and so we Absolutely, build all those really important active listening skills. Like it sounds so. Try, you know, learn all that in our training or interpersonal skills. But actually, active listening skills—the good use of things like reflection and paraphrasing and open questions—that's yeah. what we use. Like our whole training is built around how you skillfully use those um, micro skills to build a connection with someone, to create a safe space, to enable them to talk about whatever is on their mind, to just sit with them in their pain and not feel the need to fix them or move things more quickly than they want to do. And all of that is is really skillful. And I think actually, because we teach all that stuff to non-clinicians,
0: yeah. it's
2: easier for them to do because the most problematic people we have coming to work for Lifeline people who've got a lot of skills, psychologists, people with a counselling background, because they, they're used to, to doing something a bit different and we actually have to get them to kind of dial it back a bit. Yeah. Um, so for them it's quite a challenge. But, yeah, absolutely the, the most critical thing is um, around engaging and building a connection with someone. And you've just got to be, um, be genuine in your intention there. Mm. to to not rush just to sit in that important bit at the start which is around how do you make feel safe and give them
1: space well that's really comforting for people to hear I think because kind of the message and and correct me if I'm wrong that you're giving there is that you already have the skills it's about moving them into a different medium so anything that people have in their everyday practice they can just shift over it's not a question of anything new well that's great Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question as well is that right sneak one in Vanessa yeah go on you know. <laughs> tell us about Vogue tell us about yeah, Vogue. Oh, Vogue I was ask that actually so go on yeah we're
0: dying to uh, ask you
2: about that I know it's, it's we've had some comedy moments about me being in Vogue like who would have thought right we were talking about at the start of our career I thought I'd never be working for Lifeline I certainly never thought that I would be you know, <laughs> you know, that's not what I went into nursing for um mm-hmm. But actually, Australian Vogue did a series of interviews around um, women who work in healthcare in all different kinds of ways, who were who were part of an organisation that were dealing with the impact of, of COVID. Um, so Lifeline were invited to take part, and they um, asked me if I would do it. So that's how I got to be in Vogue. Um, and it was a really cool experience, actually. It was a really good interview. It was really interesting um, time to talk to them because it was right in the middle of mm. down and we had this amazing uh, photographer who's had his pictures in the New York Times turned up at, mm. at our house and um, yeah, we had some really funny moments when we knew he was coming. So my kids were like, thinking of all the different ways that I could answer the door because obviously we knew he was coming to take a picture about quite a serious thing and they were like, you should answer the door in your bikini. Maybe you should say... <laughs> should I the pool do I need a cocktail um, <laughs> should we ask him to do some family snaps while he's here oh, so, it Must be so yeah, just know. so you
0: know yeah. yeah yeah I mean it's such a beautiful um strong image of you as well isn't it the photograph it's really strange. yeah it
2: is actually I don't have many pictures of myself that I like but that one is it's pretty awesome yeah
0: you really need to get a copy of it for home But, um, yeah, I mean, I think what struck me about it um, was it's a really strong image, but it's also a really female image because it's in your home and there's quite a feminine aspect to that photograph. So it got me thinking, really. um, And I guess this is why it's great in a way that Vogue covered it because of them having such a strong female kind of followership. Is just about um, leadership as a female. Um, Do you think there are... um, uh, female characteristics um, of female leadership or do you think leadership should be universal and not gendered at all? What are your thoughts on that?
2: I think there's a definite case to be made for strong female leadership and I think it's really interesting now looking at the the world. Like, honestly, who would you rather have in charge of your country? Jacinda yeah. Ardern, Angela Merkel or Trump? Like, yeah. you know, I think that there are... <laughs> Real examples of female leaders who are showing that you can be empathic and decisive and determined and, and and be a leader, but be a leader in a way that you can bring people um, with you. So I definitely think that we should celebrate the, the characteristics of positive female mm-hmm. and not feel like we have to lead like a like a man because you know like what does that even mean not all men are the same it's it's such a kind of stupid comparison in a in a way but I think that there are definitely there are things that women as, as leaders think are more perhaps are more important the stuff around bringing people with you about having compassion and empathy for the people that work for you for not wanting to um kind of crush them all in an effort to get to the top, but actually to celebrate everyone's successes as well as your own. And that doesn't need to be a female thing either. Men can do that as well. But I think perhaps there's some of the things that probably women as leaders are intuitively a bit better at, about kind of bringing the people with you and that sense of team and kind of collective ownership. And so I think it's really important to um, to celebrate all that. And also to just, just to show that we can... Be a parent and have a great job and be a fully functioning person in in society. Like it doesn't have to be. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it doesn't have to be an either or thing. I am, um, you know, I always kind of think about that quote that does the rounds about there's this perception that um, you have to you have to work like you don't have children and you have to parent like you don't have a job and that is the dilemma of a working woman and and as much as I kind of think it's true. I think it's probably something that we impose on ourselves as much as other people impose on us. I think we're kind of really good at putting guilt on ourselves, feeling guilty because, you know, we give the kids canteen money instead of making them lunch, or we don't get back in time to do something, or we feel like we leave work early to get somewhere. We're really good at just... Making ourselves feel bad about the fact that we're actually doing an incredible job. So I think, yeah, learning about that stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's a really great message, isn't it, for for sort of females who are, are watching and maybe people who are thinking about female leadership uh, as a direction to go that you can be female and a leader and those things can go together rather than having to um lead like a man and as you say what you know men are very different and diverse in terms of how they lead as well um mm. we are up to the 45 minutes um line so i think it's a kind of good first thing to end on something quick yeah, and I think that's quite a positive note to end on. Is there anything, though, just before we end that you want to say just as kind of um, a takeaway message or, or an end-of-the-interview kind of comment?
2: Oh, I wasn't ready to say any comments, but only that I've really enjoyed um, talking talking with you about this stuff. And actually, when you sent the questions through earlier, it did prompt me to think about some things I haven't really thought about for a long time, like what's between what how I used to work in the UK and here and... Think I've been a bit away a bit too long now so it was good it was good for me to switch my mind back to think about some of that but also to think just generally about a lot of the similarities like it's not really it's not really that different yeah funnier, but the pro- you know the problems are the same the workers the work is the same and the kind of you know the solutions and the good stuff is the same as well yeah, yeah that's great
0: it's been really really interesting and thank you for all your kind of answers and your your honesty really as well um i'm sure lots of people have found that really beneficial and interesting um, so just before we end
1: just need oh to i have a get, message if that's okay yeah go on dave dave's been on uh, direct messaging me so don't forget things i said and thank you very much rachel it's absolutely lovely to see um mental health doing really brilliant stuff it just it's just it's just lovely lovely really really positive thank day. you
3: yeah
1: um, uh, I've got message, so messages from um, Dave saying uh, next week's session, Emma Wadey and Alan Simpson talking about mental health re- research during COVID. So I think everybody's going to be looking at, at what we can learn from this experience In through. And also there's another uh, Unite on uh, Twitter. There's a health pension special at 5.30 if you still any energy left for this. So pace yourself today. There's a lot going on on social media. Um, and thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank Rachel. you. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you.